Hello and welcome to Real Men Feel. This is your host, author, speaker, and coach, Andy Grant. Thank you for joining us today as we take a deep dive into all things masculinity. If you are not feeling like the man you think you're supposed to be, if you are not comfortable in your own skin, I invite you to book a complimentary clarity call with me. Visit theandygrant.com slash talk while I still have open slots for one-on-one work. Go to theandygrant.com slash talk because the only definition of masculinity that matters is yours. My guest today is masculinity coach Kyrie Oliver. Kyrie is a former Division I football player who has interviewed over a 1,000 people and generated over $85 million via Facebook ads. We discuss what Kyrie sees as the three pillars of masculinity. He shares a shocking experience of physical abuse that he suffered in college. And he also shares the single most impactful practice he's ever done. Let's do it. Hey, Kyrie, welcome to Real Men Feel. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while, which is interesting because we only spoke for the first time in our lives a few days ago. Yep. But yeah, <laughs> someone connected us. So I've been, I've been watching you on Facebook at least a couple months, I think. But you know, when we first spoke, you mentioned something that caught my ear, that you were obsessed with human behavior. So has that always been the case or did something specific happen in your life to really make you interested in that? Mm. I'd say it's always been the case. I've always been a people watcher. I've always like just been super intrigued by how people interact with one another. I grew up near San Francisco, so it's kind of just a humongous melting pot. There's so many different types of people and it's just always been super intriguing to me, whether we're at the park, the grocery store, I've just always enjoyed kind of the watching of human interaction. Cool. And what about masculinity as a masculinity coach? Were you just being as we're men? Like, I don't, I don't think I've had an innate interest in masculinity as a child, but, but you know, what was that like for you? Yeah. I mean, it definitely stems from not having my father be at home. I was raised by a single mom, myself and my older brother. Honestly, it was a, a lack of feeling safe. I think as a kid feeling cared about as a kid, my, my dad was just kind of super inconsistent. He was in and out. We'd see him. We wouldn't see him for three, four months. And I think it just came from, again, that need for safety. And I noticed that I wasn't going to get it from the singular source that most people get it from. So I was going to have to source it myself. And I don't think I like put it in those words at like six years old. I've written an article about this specific story where I had a worm project. Uh, We were like studying worms in first grade, some six. And my dad promises me he's going to be there. It's at like 9 a.m. My dad worked graveyard shifts. So he'd get off at seven and he'd drive over to my school he didn't show up like the entire day, didn't call nothing. And my dad had let me down before, but I think it was the first time it had happened publicly, like where my teacher and my other students in the classroom saw it. So it just kind of hurt a little bit different. And so I think like a day or two later, he comes over and like takes me for a walk around the block to apologize. And, you know, to him, I made it seem like I understood and you know, I get it and blah, blah, blah. I think his excuse that time was that his alarm clock broke. And uh, I remember coming back home and telling my mom, like I was, I just came home, started crying. I was like, Hey mom, I, I don't think dad's alarm clock broke. I don't think it really ever breaks every time he says it does. I don't think his car breaks down as much as he says it does. I just don't think dad cared that much. And maybe like sleep was more important or maybe whoever he was dating at the time was more important. And I just remember like really having that sink in probably again around the age of six that like my dad's not going to be the guy 
you know, he's a funny guy. He's great to hang out with, but he's not going to be the guy that's going to teach me what it is to do this thing called being a man. And so I think I just have sourced it from probably 15 different men that I've like had personally throughout my life from teachers, coaches, friends, parents, my great grandfather, my grandfather, my uncles. And I think it just kind of had to collect a vision of what masculinity is. And I used to see that as a negative thing. And I realized later on, like, no, actually I'm what most men get as a picture of masculinity is their father. But that also comes with their father's biases, his limitations, his expectations that oftentimes he didn't meet himself, which he's putting on you. And I got a little bit more of a pure version because I got to take different men that I interacted with in my life and take a piece of them instead of the whole thing. And I realized like it kind of became, call it a superpower or a, a special lens that I got to look at masculinity through, which is, I like how this guy handles his finances. I like how this guy handles his marriage. I like how this guy interacts with his children. And I got to kind of piece together a bespoke version of masculinity for myself. Cool. I always tell guys, the only definition of masculinity that matters is yours. You found that out really, really young and got to piece your, you know, your ideal definition and really work with it throughout your life. You know, that's almost the best side of the father wound of growing up with an emotionally or physically absent dad, call it the father wound, and getting the opportunity to create your own definition of masculinity and source it, like you said, that's the best upside I've ever heard from that. Yeah. Again, I didn't notice it at the time. I don't think I like recognize what it was, but I think I just chose along the way for it to be a positive and, and not something that was going to hold me back. Cool. And I like how you talked about safety too, because yeah, about six, six years old is when I decided the world wasn't safe. My parents divorced when I was five. I started getting molested by a neighbor at that same age. And I thought if I told my mom that I'd be the next man kicked out of the house, like I thought, you know, men get punished for getting in trouble or whatever it might mm. be. But again, that notion of, of safety from a young age definitely really resonates with me. So I'm, uh, you know, you are a large black man, but you're also very <laughs> open and engaging. I shouldn't say but like that, but yeah, I will say but because it seems contrary. Yeah, and yeah, is yeah. correct, but but is the feeling. And so I yes. wonder what your experience is having people kind of be intimidated by you or being surprised that you're, you are engaging and outgoing. What, what's that been like? Again, I've, I've chosen to turn it into a superpower. I know how I'm perceived. I'm covered in tattoos. I know how I'm perceived when I walk into a room. I'm six foot six, again, X division one football player. I'm an intimidating looking human being. And so a lot of times when I go to events, I would just be quiet for like the first hour. I just wouldn't talk to anybody. And most events I go to, I know the speakers. I know somebody and almost every time at some point with them on stage, they'll make eye contact with me and all of a sudden their face brightens up. Oh, hey, Kyrie, how are you doing? Oh my gosh, great to see you, blah, 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 blah. And now I just have borrowed his credibility from the entire audience. And, you know, I, I teach this when I teach my students about networking of like, mystery is good at first. I want people not to know really what to expect of me because I'm allowing you to get your preconceived notion. Big tattooed black guy, big old beard, maybe like my arms crossed and my legs crossed in the back of the room or sitting in the front, not talking to anybody. I want you to get that perspective first. And then I get to become this guy. And I've realized like it was such an overhaul that when I go to like marketing events now, I own a digital marketing company. Most of the guys in there are 35 to 45 white guy with an accounting degree or a marketing degree from whatever university, and they all dress alike and they all look very similar. So because I naturally stand out, 
as soon as you realize I'm this guy, that I'm well-spoken, that I'm a smiley guy, that I'm engaging and that I'm articulate, I now surpass all those other guys who you just assumed were already that. So it's the contradiction between what you would assume about me and what you get from me that actually raises my status above the average guy inside of that sphere. And I just choose to do that in the coaching industry and in my marketing industry. So you mentioned, you know, back with the room project that you were crying about it as a child. So growing up being raised by a single mom, which, which I experienced as well, did that give you more permission to be kind of emotionally free? Were you in trouble for crying ever? No, no, never. I think I had a good balance though. Cause again, my uncles were the ones who were playing out in the backyard. We skin our knees. They tell us to get up and brush it off and we're good. And then we have mom to go home to who like is super validating of our emotions, sometimes even over the top, which kind of hindered us actually later on in life. Cause we got used to it too much. But I think overall I had a pretty healthy balance of just people feeding into us being able to express ourselves. So expand on that bit about you thought it hindered you later. What do you mean by that? So my brother and I both played football. We weren't able to play football as kids because we were over the weight limit because we were a foot taller than every other kid in school. And so we didn't play until high school. And we both got out there and realized, oh, shoot, we don't know how to be aggressive. We had always been the bigger kids. And mom was always telling us, hey, you can't roughhouse with your friends because you'll hurt them or you can't, you know, be that aggressor, physically masculine, physically dominant thing, we always had to repress that side of ourselves, literally like to stop us from endangering our friends. And so once it came time to utilize that, we were both super, super hesitant. Or there were times like we would be afraid to assert ourselves because mom had always said to kind of reel that side back in. And uh, I think I stepped into it more naturally. But for my brother, it was a struggle. My brother, from his freshman year of high school until halfway through his senior year of high school, like didn't know how to flip that switch and become that person he needed to be. Luckily, second half of his senior year, he turned it on, ended up getting a scholarship to UCLA. I ended up going to University of Idaho and we both kind of were able to step into that, but it was very difficult to become that person because we always had that voice of mom in the back of our heads. Hmm, interesting. So as a division one football player, did you find that you could turn it on, be aggressive on the field? Or once you turned it on, did, were you aggressive more often? And like, how did that work? Mm, I think I was more confident uh, apart from the field, but I would always have like a small ritual that I did with myself before I'd step on the football field that allowed me to flip that switch and turn that into overdrive, like where I no longer care about you or your family or your well-being. My job is to hurt you and stop you from getting to what you're trying to get to. But I was very good at kind of flipping that switch on and off. I didn't become a super hyper aggressive person. And did that make you unique among other players or was that kind of that switch there for most guys? No, I don't think it was there for most guys. I realized once we got to high school, like the guys who knew they were undersized, the guys who knew that they weren't making grades, I think they already had started kind of like falling out of the love of the sport of football. And I was just getting into it. I was just learning it for the first time. And luckily I had a size advantage to kind of help me along. But as I got better, I fell more and more in love with it. And so I think that was, aside from our size, I think that was a big thing that kind of played to my benefit was I was just willing to go further than other people. I was willing to be more aggressive, more out there, more physically like violent than other people inside of this container. And then again, still able to be myself outside of it. Cool. And was there ever flack? Was it like, why aren't you this tough, you know, off the field or things like that? Did that ever come your way? 
No, it was more, again, it was more of my brother. Our coaches would get on him quite a bit for, you know, being a little bit too passive or not wanting to hurt somebody or just things like that. But no, I, I never really got ridiculed for it. Good for you. <laughs> and it may, maybe because you are so large and intimidating, people wouldn't confront you or bring things up that if they thought you were not being their version of whatever a man is. Yeah. I still even realize that nowadays, I was just talking to a few of my friends. We were doing like a little, we were smoking cigars on the roof of their apartment complex the other day up here in Scottsdale. And he was talking about this guy who was being super aggressive with him about not wearing a mask and like just blatantly rude. And my friend is five, nine, five, eight. I laughed and I was like, dude, I, I don't ever get that from people. And that's actually sometimes become a hindrance because I don't know when people are shitty until one of my friends is like, yeah, he said some crazy thing to me the other day and totally out of nowhere because people don't feel confident doing that with me. And there's a lot of times because of my physical size and I think, again, the way that I carry myself, but I realize that I don't get that version of people, which is sometimes like the most honest version of them because they would be, there's always this, as men, this underlying fear of like violent physical action against you if you do something like that. So it's something that I've had a very warped view of for sure. I'm sure that's the case. I can, people just judging you by not even a first impression, just first look, right? And deciding, oh, I, I don't want to piss that guy off, so I'm not going to say a thing. So yeah, you get deprived of some interactions that others might take for granted too, I bet. One of the first things I saw from you was this was a video of you talking about the pillars of masculinity. And I found it really interesting. So could you share your views on the pillars of masculinity? Yeah. I actually don't even remember where these came from, but there's just something I was thinking of of like, there's obviously a problem with the messaging we're having around masculinity. And there's one side that teaches very passive, very flowy, go with the flow type of masculinity. And then there's like the raw, raw, beat your chest, hyper militant side. And I didn't agree with either one of them. And I just realized that same thing I view politics as is each one's missing a very distinct part of the whole picture. And the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. So I developed these three pillars called your soft heart, thick skin and hard head. The soft heart is your empathy, your ability to feel for other people and really even feel for yourself and really put yourself in that other person's shoes. The thick skin is your emotional intelligence. It's your ability to filter that information, to filter those emotions and see what action is best fitting your desired outcome. Then you have the hard head, which is the grit, determination, stick-to-itiveness, the ability to stay with that action despite outside influence once you made the decision. So it's recognize the emotion, send it through that filter of what part of this emotion is actually serving what I'm looking to do. And then how do I stick to that despite what other people are saying, despite what my family says, despite what media says, anything else, how do I just stay this person no matter what? Cool. Yeah, I love what you said about how the emotion served you because that's something I've been sharing for decades, it feels like, but that, especially for men, like, we are entitled and supposed to feel all the emotions. And every emotion does serve us. If we listen and like, what's the information? What is this telling me? Is this something I want to feel more of or something I feel less of? But saying that, no, we just don't feel it, denying it, stuffing it, that just comes out in some distorted way at some point. Like, and you can't think your emotions either. And that's another thing I see guys get stuck into. But the hard-headedness, that seems to be like the aspect of masculinity that most people see or easiest pillar to grab hold of. Is that your experience? Yeah, but without the other two pillars, it fails you and it shows up as anger and it shows up as resentment and it shows up as feeling suppressed as like this, this just knot in your stomach that has been 
trying to come out and you you just can't for some reason. And so I think the first two pillars allow you to do the third pillar the right way. And that's the part of the conversation that I don't think is being had. Is this just the way you lived and you realized, oh, this is a framework that can help others? Or did, did one of these pillars take work on your behalf for yourself as well? So I think it was pattern recognition for me. I've interviewed over a thousand people. I started when I was 19. Most of the time it was like 19 to 22. And I was interviewing like eight people a day, sometimes eight or nine people and any type of person you could possibly think of. I've interviewed Buddhist monks, three serial killers, 65 end of life interviews with people who had terminal illnesses and were going to die within the next like nine months to a year. Drug addicts, homeless people, billionaires, politicians. I've interviewed literally any type of person you could possibly think of. And it was just pattern recognition for me. It was what are the things that I can say from the most successfully like fulfilled people that I've interviewed? What were the commonalities? What did they do right? And then the people who went wrong, where did they go wrong? And what do they not have enough of? What did they have too much of? And so I just realized like this was the balancing act, let's call it an equilibrium that was actually supposed to be attained to live the best type of life, specifically as a man, but generally as an adult in the world. Fascinating. What prompted these interviews? Was this for some end result or just for your own personal growth and entertainment or? Well, not so much entertainment, but definitely like end result and then personal growth. They kind of tie in together. I was just trying to find me. I had just come back from college. My whole identity had been around being a football player and I felt like that had gotten stripped from me. And so I now have to go back and like reevaluate who am I? How do I show up in the world? How do I want to engage with the people around me? And I had this numbness that had kind of set in. I, I went through physical abuse when I was in college and it, it got to a really, really like crazy point that didn't end up happening, but I ended up moving home and just kind of felt again, this like emptiness. So I had to like relearn emotion. I had to relearn how to feel for myself and for other people. I just had to relearn myself. And so I think this was the attempt to do that. I think I was watching something with like Tony Robbins talking about the people that he'd interviewed. And I just figured I might as well, like I might as well just learn as much as I can about as many people because I knew I wanted to help people, but I knew I didn't at the time really have the tools to do that. I was 19 years old. So I was like, how do I fast track this? How do I get so much experience without having to just wait for father time? And, you know, when I'm 60, I finally get to help people. And I realized that it was just taking other people's experiences and choosing to learn from them actively, choosing to pay attention to really what they'd gone through and what they'd experienced, and then try to use that to mold my own life and my vision for myself. This desire to help people, had that always been there since a young age? Yeah. Cool. One thing I was surprised with, so growing up, some abuse and all sorts of you know circumstances that made me think the world was not a safe place and suicidal from a really young age. And something that I discovered later in life was that how good service feels. And nobody ever told me that growing up. Like, oh, you feel miserable? Go, go help somebody. Like, that was not a thing I heard. But it sounds like, did, so did someone teach you that? Or did you just innately know it, discover it? How did that work for you? I didn't know it. I discovered it while I was doing it. <laughs> I didn't know that that was going to be the end result, that I was going to figure myself out. The goal was to help other people. And so I just didn't know that it was going to fill me up as well. But I, I just I got both at the same time. And it was it was just a, a great experience to have. And now again, I get to carry that around with me. I get a whole bunch of other people's experiences and stories floating around in my head all the time. Awesome. 
You mentioned some sort of abuse in college. Was that in a relationship or was that something like on the football field or? No, in the locker room, in the locker room for my teammates. I was getting jumped by my teammates three or four at a time. Wow. Is that like a hazing sort of thing or something worse beyond that? It was hazing that got out of control. I think with the hazing, as a freshman, you're expected not to fight back, not to do anything. Man, I just, I wasn't that guy. And so I did. <laughs> and then it just kind of piled on more and more. And it, it probably went on for about eight months. Yeah, super, super trying time. Luckily, like never went to drugs, alcohol, anything like that, but just incredibly depressed. And again, incredibly like depleted and empty as a human. So is that one of the things that really made you have to find this line of when to be aggressive and when to be passive? No, that taught me like over the top aggression. And then I actually was worried that I would carry that back home with me. That like the next time I got into a physical altercation that I wouldn't be able to stop myself because at the time I literally like it was my life on the line. Luckily and unluckily, probably about a year and a half later, I got to prove it to myself in an altercation when I was driving for Lyft and Uber in San Francisco, I had a taxi driver try to fight me. It was like the first time since that time that I had gotten into a physical altercation and realized like, oh, I can stop myself. I'm not a slave to this thing that, that I really was afraid of and that I would like try everything I could to stay away from physical interactions with people because of. It was the first time I realized like, oh no, I can regulate this. Were there other lessons in that interaction, having that experience in college, were there other lessons that you got out of that? Yeah, setting a standard and setting boundaries for how you're going to be treated, I think was huge. I think the biggest thing besides that that I was able to see was like how much I was able to undergo without being destructive to myself or other people, even though it almost ended that way. It was a very big test of my, I want to say emotional fortitude, but I felt like an emotional wreck at the time. But the ability to not act out insanely under like incredible, incredible stress, balancing that with not telling my family, with classes, with everything else. So I think it just taught me, let's call it steadfastness in the face of just immense difficulty. Was every freshman player treated that way or you for some reason treated worse or because you're big that just more people like jump you for no good reason? It was because I was not timid. And it was because I was a starter. I went from sixth string to first string in like 10 days being there. And the rest of the freshmen were very much like it was understood. They were all red shirting. They were all kind of just got to sit back and be freshmen. And I got tossed in with the starters pretty quickly just because of my talent level at the time. And so I think that had a lot to do with it. Plus the fact that I wasn't just to sit back and let you verbally abuse me or, you know, kick me after a play or anything like that. I just, it just wasn't things that I tolerated. Wow. Well, I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you, I'm asking a lot of questions because it just blows my mind. Like I'm used to thinking you're a team and not turning on each other. And it sounds like to such drastic extents as, as you experience. So I'm just, yeah, no, I'm amazed. <laughs> it wasn't that. All right. So then did you switch programs? Is that the college you stayed at? No, I ended up leaving. I was there eight months total, seven months total. I ended up moving home. I had to play junior college for a year. And in the course of that before, I was actually going to transfer to Cal Berkeley in Northern California, closer to home. There was a stipulation that if you move back home from a division one university, that you had to go to another U- division one within, if you, if the reason was for family reasons, because I didn't tell them why I left, I said it was for family reasons. 
if the reasons for family, the NCAA rules, I think you have to go to a school within 150 miles of your hometown. And so Cal Berkeley was the closest one that was a decent program that I was going to be going to. But while I was in junior college, taking classes, doing like spring training with them, I ended up tearing my hamstring actually at work and then spraining my ACL at the same time. At the same time, I was getting into the personal development public speaking space and it just took a whole lot of evaluating. Is this still who I am? Is this still what I want to do? And the conclusion was that the desire to help other people and use what I had experienced to help other people outweighed my desire to go to the NFL and do that whole thing. And so why didn't you tell anybody? You didn't tell the school, you didn't tell your family that that was happening. You just left school and went home. Yeah, I didn't tell anybody until I came home in January, 2013. I didn't tell anybody till June. I told my best friend who's my trainer. He was an ex NFL player as well at the same time, probably about the end of June. I think I told him, I felt like it was, it was this facade of I'm 18 now. So I'm supposed to be a grown man. And so I thought that I had to deal with it on my own. I thought that that's what adults do. And this is what I'm supposed to do. So it's, it's my burden to carry. My brother and I were also on my dad's side of the family, the first people to go to college. And we both got full ride scholarships to play division one football. It's like the dream thing. And so to me, it was a lot of embarrassment about dropping my scholarship. I got calls from family members saying, how could you, you're stupid, you're crazy, all these different things, not knowing what happened. But it was just, it was an embarrassing thing. And it was, again, something I felt like I did. I'm supposed to deal with this on my own. Yeah, so it sounded like at, at that time, you just had that one pillar. The hard-headedness is, was all you were relying on then. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. Yeah. Well, I'm very glad that you got the other pillars. <laughs> I appreciate it, yeah. Cool. You come off as this very authentic, vulnerable, open-hearted man, which is what I think the world needs. That's what a true masculinity really is. And you mentioned superpowers a few times. So why, or if, you know, maybe you don't agree, why are authenticity and vulnerability, why are those superpowers for men? There's a very limited supply and a very huge demand for it or a very huge need for it, whether it's recognized or not. So to me, the things that make you uncommon and sometimes the things that make you feel like an outsider those are the things that I think can also catapult you to becoming one of your superpowers. That sounds like you had a lot of different male role models to choose kind of the best aspects from in your life. Does any one man stick out as having the most impact or really was this great stew? It was a great stew. And this is why I hesitate to, I don't even teach any of my students about getting role models. I teach them about getting mentors and people to help along the way, but people being put up on a pedestal is to me crazy now because I had done it with that same best friend that I had talked to. He was the first guy I met him when I was 16. We were best friends until I was 22, almost 23. And he had just maybe over like the last six months of our friendship had kind of eroded my respect for him. I held this guy in the highest regard. And there were just a few things that he had done and he had kind of talked to me about he was kind of getting more popular online and he was like gaining a following. And I think he bought a little too much into himself and his persona and it allowed him to go outside of his own morals or what he had said were his own morals quite a few times. And it was something that I just, again, was like, I, it devastated me. This was supposed to be the guy that was the type of man that I wanted to be. And he fell short of that. And while at the time I was mad at him about it, I realized that, that was my responsibility. 
to not pedestalize other people, to not make people seem higher than human. He was probably like the biggest impact on doing this work. But then even with that reference point, I had to then go and say, I need to do even better than that. And I need to become that for the people who choose to follow me. Cool. Yeah, I resonate a lot with that. I've run into that often of mentors and coaches and trainers and thinking, well, they must be perfect. And then when they fall, it's like, what? I fall too. I'm like, oh no, then if they can't do it, how can I ever do it? And that kind of stuff. That was the question. Was, what does that say about me? If this guy who I held in such high regard and I felt was much better and stronger, like as a human than me, if he fell, I'm just bound to. And that was part of like one of our conversations. He had said, you're not old enough to have made the same mistakes I have. And what that presupposes is that given enough times, I will. And at, like I just wasn't willing to buy into that. I just wasn't willing to accept that as reality. So it was just a realization that like we just can't have the same interactions we had before. In all of your introspection and personal growth work, is there one habit, practice, program that stands out that you would like to, to give a shout out to? What helped you the most? Oh my gosh. It's not one that I recommend to everybody. But I'd say it was the singular most impactful. I probably had about a year and a half. I was working at, in special education. I was living in my ex-girlfriend's dad's old duck hunting trailer on their property in Northern California. I would come home from work every day and probably three days a week, I would stare at myself in the mirror in my trailer. I had like a, a bed and then right next to it was the closet, but the closet doors were like sliding mirrors. And so I would put my phone on the other side of the trailer. I'd have the TV off, everything off, I would just stare at myself in the mirror. And it was probably for a good 45 minutes to an hour each time. And I just realized like, you meet yourself when that happens. When you're left alone with just you, you meet all the different sides of yourself. And it can be a super scary thing. It can be a dangerous thing at times, which is again, why I don't recommend it to everybody. But I had made a promise to myself that if there's something that comes up that I cannot handle on my own, I will go seek help. I will go seek a professional. And I'd say it got close a few times, but it just never got to a point where I felt unsafe with myself. And so I just kept doing it. I just kept having this practice. So I don't even know what that is. Three times a week for a year and a half, 80 times that I've just sat for an hour and just stared at myself. I, I feel like I know myself better than almost anybody I know just because I've dedicated the time to doing it. I call it mirror work when I look in the mirror and I say positive affirmations and hold your own gaze and say, I love you into the mirror. But yeah. 45 minutes of just silence in the mirror, that is not something I've, I've ever uh, even attempted. So that, well, that sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it is crazy. Huh. What's one thing that you wish more men knew? Mm. That you can express your emotion and still be safe. That you can be vulnerable and still be safe. I think there's this perception and a lot of guys, again, feed the perception that showing emotion makes you weak. And I think being a slave to your emotion does make you weak. I think buying too far into your emotion does make you weak in some ways. I think believing too much of your emotion and not sending it through that filter can weaken you quite a bit. But the emotions themselves and the fact that they're there is a literal survival thing. And so they need to be honored. They need to be dove into and understood. And I just don't think we spend enough time wondering about that or, or really kind of digging into that as men. Couldn't agree more. So you've been a, a top athlete and now you're, you're a masculinity coach. How does sports coaching differ from kind of life coaching that aspect, if it does? 
you know, I, th- I think the sports coaching only teaches the mental toughness side, the physical toughness side. And I think it, it misses the key part is that the first two pillars, which I don't think are as important in sports, but there definitely is a translation between sports and life. And a lot of like the off the field activity that we see athletes engaging in are because they don't have those first two pillars, but it's also partially what allows them to be the great athletes that we watch. So it's kind of a, a conundrum that you have in that industry. But I'd say there's quite a few parallels that I've taken from my business from playing sports, the mentality side, it was really only that last pillar. It's really only the, again, I'm willing to go further than you are. I'm willing to work longer than you are. I'm willing to stay up longer than you are. I'm willing to miss meals and sleep and friend and family time more than you are when I was coming up in business. And I think that helped me to surpass so many people when we started at the same time. Cool. You know, you have a tremendous amount of resiliency and ability to look at yourself and be tough and soft all at the same time somehow. I wonder what you are most proud of. I'd say I'm most proud of my ability to step outside of myself and take that in literature, you call it the third eye omniscient view, the narrative view of yourself. And I think, again, it came from that time of numbness. It came from that time of being devoid of emotion where I gained objectivity. I got so far into like the pit of despair that I acquired objectivity and I get to use that now in my own life. I get to use it with my clients. I get to literally without any bias, without any limitation, without any, anything, I get to purely look at a thing as it is. And I think it helps us shape our view of things or it helps at least provide a separate perspective. So with that ability to step out and see your life, see the narrative, do you like your story? It's not something I consider whether I like it or not. Yeah, I don't think it matters whether I like it. I think the matter is whether it's impactful for other people. I'm not that I'm unattached to my story because it is my story. But again, when I try to look at it objectively, it doesn't matter what I think about it. The matter is what are you getting from it? The person I'm speaking to or the person listening to this podcast right now, does it resonate with you? Does it spark something in you? Does it make you want to do, go, be, have more? And I think the success or the failure of my story or the goodness of my story is only equal to the level of impact it has on other people. Cool. I like that. So Kyrie, how can people learn more about you, what you're up to, follow you? Yeah. So Instagram is probably the easiest. It's just at Kyrie, K-Y-R-E-E. Facebook, if you look up Kyrie Oliver, you'll see a big brown bear face. I do have a podcast coming out in about a week. I'm starting my own kind of solo podcast here at my house. I'd say those are probably the easiest ways. But Instagram, like anybody who has questions or you know wants to follow up on anything that I said here, Instagram at Kyrie, K-Y-R-E-E is probably the easiest. Does your podcast have a name yet? The Papa Bear Podcast. Papa Bear. Cool. I'll be looking for that. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time today. I really respect and honor the work that you're doing, the message that you put out, all the sharing, authenticity that you bring to the world. So yeah, thanks for being here. And everybody, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us today. Wherever you're listening to Real Men Feel, please subscribe, share this with somebody, post a review, a comment, reach out to me at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you. And I find that coaching is one of the most powerful forces on the planet. I've had counseling. I've seen psychologists, psychiatrists. I've been on meds. 
coaching got me more value than any of those ever did. So if you feel drawn, reach out to Kyrie, reach out to me, reach out to someone. I like, I don't care who you coach with, but if you want to make improvements in your life, you do it best with a coach. I love it, man. Thank you again. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. My pleasure. And until next time, everybody, be good to yourself. Yeah.